and what I've noticed is you'll get some, you know, you'll get some uh, camper whose goal it is to finish their first half marathon, and who knows, they might run two and a half hours for a half marathon, having dinner with Tyler Pinnell on our team who ran 101.40 for a half marathon two years ago, and and who uh, and who and who made the race at the Olympic trials. It should be said in 2016. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, and, and most campers then find out that there really isn't much difference between the two of them. I mean, there's days you run hard, days you run easy, there's days you take off, there's uh, days you should go see a massage therapist for rehab. Um, it's just that one athlete's running a hell of a lot faster. Coaching and Performance. My name is George Darden. I'm an endurance athlete and coach here in Atlanta, Georgia. This week on the podcast, Patrick and I spoke to Peter Ray, who is the head coach at Zap Fitness in Blowing Rock, North Carolina. I didn't realize until we actually started talking to Pete that he and I have been friends for more than 20 years now. Um, way back in the winter of 2002, I got a phone call from a friend of mine named Josh Glass. Uh, those of you who are runners or athletes here in the Atlanta area uh, probably know Josh's name as the owner of Georgia Sports Chiropractic. Um, he left me a message on the answering machine and simply said, call Pete. Um, now Pete was Peter Ray, um, and uh, Pete had been uh, had become a really good friend of mine. He was graduated from UConn, but had spent some time at Georgia Tech, and then after being graduated, moved back down to the Atlanta area to work for Nike. Um, because about the same time I was at Georgia Tech, he and I had a lot of mutual friends, and we were in similar circles. And then in the fall of 2000, uh, we found ourselves working at the same high school, and we started running together a whole lot during that period. Um, now, when I got that message from Josh, I had some sort of strange premonition that it had something to do with Andy Palmer. Um, Andy, at the time, was my coach. Um, I had hired Andy about 18 months earlier than that um, to help me qualify for the Olympic trials and the marathon. That was something that, that a lot of people at my level of runner at the time aspired to, to do, uh, it was to qualify for, for, for the Olympic trials. Uh, and so I've been working with him for, for more than a year and, and talking a lot to him. I had been up to visit him in Blowing Rock, North Carolina, Andy that is, um, in a new facility that he and his wife Zika were putting together um, that they were calling Zap Fitness, Zika and Andy Palmer Fitness. And the goal was to try and bridge the gap for really good collegiate runners into the professional ranks. Um, so I called back Pete, uh, I called him up, and, and I remember very clearly he said, you know what, there's no easy way to tell you this, Andy died. Um, Andy was only about 46 years old at the time, I want to say, um, and he died from a heart attack when he was on a run in Moses Cone National Park, uh, really close to the Zap Fitness facility there in Blowing Rock. Um, I didn't know it at the time, but, but Pete had actually been invited by Andy to become an assistant up at Zap Fitness uh, for the following school year. Um, and I'm going to let Pete actually pick up the story from there. You know, ZAP is an acronym for Zika and Andy Palmer. Uh, and Andy, um, I had known Andy uh, even long before he met Zika. He was a, a standout runner from Maine, and he ran two Olympic trials in the marathon. So when I was an up-and-coming uh, high school runner and college runner, his career was sort of working toward its twilight. But we actually raced against each other quite a bit. 
and got to know him. Worked summer adult running camps um, in Craftsbury, Vermont, in northern Vermont for six summers together. Uh, and um, when he and Zika decided that they wanted to essentially put together a full-time running center, uh, I was living in Atlanta teaching high school and coaching, and coaching uh, three or four private individuals as well outside the high school kids, asked me if I'd be his assistant coach. Uh, so uh, I accepted in the last year I was teaching high school, and um, just as the facility was being closed in, uh, being completed in February of 2002, he passed away. So uh, I guess you could say I was promoted, just, you know, promoted the wrong way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so you actually agreed to come on and be his assistant while he was still alive then? Correct, yeah. In fact, uh, he asked me, uh, they, they knew that they wanted to have someone as a sort of, sort of his assistant, uh, offered me that job in the fall of 01. Um, the building was completed in November of 01, and I was still teaching public school in February of 02 um, when, when he died, yeah. Right on. I gotcha. Um, and so, so tell us a little bit about like, the athletes that come to ZAP, and, and tell us a little bit about that and sort of what you do. Sure. Uh, I guess the best way to describe our athletes, they're all Americans. Um, they're all um, men and women who are American citizens. They're all college graduates. And um, the, the, I guess the best way to describe it is that in the world of professional post-collegiate running, there are the handful of individuals who run so fast and uh, when they're collegians that they can kind of go anywhere they want. You know, if you want to stay with your college coach, you can do that. If you want to stay in your hometown, you can do that. Um, but the, the, that sort of very next tier, I, I don't even like to use the term AAA ball players if we're using a baseball metaphor because it's probably even a little better than that. I mean, right. most of the athletes who come here are ones who were maybe third, fourth, fifth at Division One NCAAs, or maybe they were a Division Three NCAA champion. We've got one of those now, or we've got a couple of Division Two NCAA champions on the team now. Um, but just a hair below the tier where they would be well paid to run if they didn't join a group, and um, that serves that athlete, you know, the ones who we see as, uh, with a few years' development, they could really um, emerge into being just as good as any one of those right out of college blue chippers. So that, and the reason for that, I guess, is because that upper tier is it's a very small number of people. Is that right? Yeah, and it, and and you know, back when that started. Before really any of the groups, there was Hanson's and Team USA Minnesota and us, really, just those three. But but prior to that, American running was good, but in 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 the handful, in the Bob Kennedys and Todd Williams and you know Amy Rudolph, I mean they, we had good people, we surely did, Todd Williams. Um, but our depth was poor, and now the depth uh, because of the groups. There's so many athletes being supported. There's an additional 80 to 90 men and 80 to 90 women being supported by the types of groups like that. That our depth has is uh, it's 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 astounding. Now now the 25th or 30th ranked time in say the 5K or 10K, uh, you, you know, would have been a top five performance in 2000. Right on. Right on. And now, what do you attribute to that improvement, like in in, in times? I, I really, I, I think some of it, as much as I tend to be a little bit old school and I'm not a fan of techno technology as far as, you know, the, the, the athletes who spend all day looking at times on the Internet and everything, the positive is athletes are aware of what other athletes are doing training-wise, uh, and that's just not a pro level, but, you know, even the high school level, I mean, when I was in high school, I thought that, you know, geez, if you ran 50 or 60 miles a week, you know, you were really training a ton, and you find out that there's lots of kids running a lot more or, you know, they're doing longer tempo runs. or So awareness has helped 
the athletes in terms of they're aware of just how hard the rest of the country and the rest of the world is training. And the training now uh, reflects what the rest of the world was doing even before the U.S. had this major upswing. And then the other part is just the group thing that we had gotten away from. You know, groups like Athletics West and Chicago Track Club and Greater Boston Track Club, which defined our depth in the 70s and 80s, particularly in the marathon, went away in the late 80s to the 90s when I was competing as a post-collegiate, and our depth was pathetic. It was it was really, really bad. I guess it was good for me. Um, but, uh, <laughs> um, but now, you know, you've got, like on our team, eight men who every day are training together, and pushing each other, and um, it just it, it it elevates the uh, it elevates the masses. And I hear the same thing from Keith and Kevin Hanson at the Hanson's team, and from Ben Rosario at Northern Arizona Lead, and uh, Robert Gary at the Furman Post Collegiate Group. Now that when you put four, six, eight, ten, twelve men or women together and say, you know, hey, here's this session. The intervals that might have been three-minute kilometer repeats become 257s with the same effort. Um, you know, the tempo runs that become 10-mile tempo runs that would have been maybe 50-20 become 49-40 um, at the same effort just because you can you get so much out of pulling off people. Right on. I, yeah, think, that's what, I think that's why we're getting so much better. For sure. I'm glad you mentioned that, that kind of group aspect to it because we've talked on this podcast before about, about groups and about, um, about how they can push you to do better. When you're choosing athletes or when when athletes are applying to you, um, yeah. do you think about how they're going to fit in with the group and, and how, how they're going to add to the group aspect, not only during workouts like you described, but also because, I mean, all these folks live together, right? Do they live on the facility or? Right. So of all the post-collegiate groups, we're the only one which actually possesses a facility. You know, we've got a, all the athletes live here in apartments and we have a home on site on the land. And, uh, yeah, so when we, when athletes apply, we have requisite standards. They have to have run so fast when they were in college just to apply. But we turn away more than half of our applicants. And um, some of it is, do we, do we think they're going to be a good fit in terms of, I mean, our athletes eat together, train together. I mean, they're together all the time, which is not the best situation for some people. It's not. Mm-hmm. Plus, we're very rural. You know, we're in the mountains on a dirt road. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, uh, an athlete's personality and how we feel they'll interact with others um, matters, not just um, how fast they run, which might be a little different than other groups. I'm, I'm not 100% sure, but we, uh, we definitely don't, we don't want any, any boat rockers. Now, you talked about what you look for in athletes, you know, when you, know, when you invite them to, to your camp or to the facilities. Beyond just yep. their personality, what are some other things that you look for in an athlete? Uh, a couple things. One, I like to see, I like to look at their collegiate, uh, I like to look at their collegiate performances and see that there's been upward progression. Um, this is going to sound somewhat sexist, but more with women than with men, you tend to see ones who ran really, really well when they, you know, maybe their first year in college or they were superstars in high school and then they spent four years in college getting, uh, you know, a little bit slower, a little slower, a little slower. I, I, I won't accept an athlete who hasn't seen some upward trajectory while they were a collegiate. Not that they can't have a bad year. Every athlete does. Injuries happen. But I want to see an athlete who ran a lot better as a junior or senior than they did as a freshman. Um, and then I really like athletes who don't come from the powerhouse programs. So, you know, if you went to University of Oregon or Arkansas, um, a number of other schools that are the year-in, year-out powers, um, 
they get all the super high-end blue chippers right out of high school. I mean, all the best recruits go to those schools, for, by and large. Uh, I like to I, – I guess the best way to put it is I'd rather accept a kid who ran 1350 for 5K, a, a man, in college and went to the University of Maine, one who ran 1347 and went to Stanford. And the reason that is the Stanford kid probably was running in perfect conditions all four years, rabbited races, you know, gorgeous weather, 350 days a year, whereas the kid in Maine was probably training in the ice and slop, was probably on a plane one time in four years in college and still ran fast. So I, I like the kids from the underrepresented collegiate programs. As a former Sanford Bulldog, I have to say I appreciate that. (laughs) Right on, right on. Uh, And so, so once you get those those thirteen fifty guys or or um, you know those fifteen fifty women or or whatever happens to be, how do you then decide who's going to end up doing what event? How's that conversation go? Uh, It's changed, George. The um, you know in two thousand three, two thousand four, when we started. One of the things that we, you know, we used to say, oh, you know, if you want to spend two or three years focusing on the track and, you know, and work on your speed. And all along, Bill Rogers, you know, four-time winner of the Boston Marathon, who, who speaks here every summer, oh, cool. he was always in my We, 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 we like Bill Rogers. <laughs> yeah. Oh, he's a, a wonderful, positive person and, and just an amazing resource for us. And he was always in my ear saying, why don't your athletes run marathons sooner? Like, why, why do you wait until – you've had five or six years on the track or focusing on the shorter stuff, you know, when we were our best as a marathon nation, people ran marathons right out of college. Not that you have to do it consistently. You can always go back to the 5K and 10K, work on your speed, run some cross country like he did throughout his career. But he was actually somewhat critical of us that we would, would wait till athletes were 30. Um, and now it's become so hard to make, to put any U.S. jersey on, to make any U.S. team in cross country in at the 1500 meters the steeplechase the 5000 and the 10000 um particularly in the last 4 to 5 years with these you know we've got five or six newly naturalized Americans who are really redefining what performances are for Americans we now have the conversation with those kids out of college um where we say to them hey look you've run 1548 for 5k to a young collegiate woman and you know we we we're looking in the next 18 months, two years, to, to focus on your first marathon, move up your volume, and get them focused on longer races uh, sooner than we ever would have a decade ago. Right on. Right on. Very cool. And so talk a little bit more about uh, the facility itself. You said it's on a dirt road. It's kind of in the country, but you know, I, you're, you're not, you know, you're, you're near Boone, North Carolina, and, and you're actually in a pretty cool area, as a matter of fact, in western North Carolina. Yeah. Um, and then the facility itself, and I haven't been there in more than 10 years, but it's actually really technologically advanced. So talk a little bit more about the facility, if you could, the actual building in which the, the folks live and do some training. And stuff. Yeah. So um, uh, there's a tw- we have a 24-bed guest lodge, and we only use that part of our facility when we have camps and we have adult running camps. We also host all sorts of uh, track clubs. Like this year, the Atlanta Track Club is bringing a, a group of 20 adults to stay, to stay here for a training weekend. Um, we, we host all sorts of groups, but we have a 24-bed guest lodge, so we can't host a huge group, uh, but anything 24 or smaller. Um, and then that is connected to our main administrative building where we have um, where we have uh, you know a full weight room with an anti gravity treadmill and you know a lift to goes and um, treadmills and as well as well as um, 
you know, classic free weights and a yoga stretching area um, for when we do yoga with groups. Um, and then a 68-acre campus. So we've just got we've got some gravel trails uh, that we run on for shorter runs. And then the town of Blowing Rock, which some of your listeners may know, it's a basically a white-collar tourist town, um, extremely busy in the summer and quite very quiet in the winter. Um, the national park in town, it's five miles from where I'm standing now, it's called Moses Cone National Park. And it's about 30 miles of groomed dirt carriage trails, uh, all above 4,000 feet elevation. So a hot day in Blowing Rock in the summer is in the high 70s. It rarely hits 80, which is unique for the south. Um, sure. Our winters are real. <laughs> uh, there's, a, there's a reason our team is in, uh, in Tallahassee, Florida, training for six weeks right now. But, uh, but yeah, and then ab- uh, above our weight room and locker rooms in our main building are our offices, athlete apartments, and then we have a full, full-time chef and a full-time kitchen, um, and our chef, uh, Michael Ryan, is great. He comes from the world of fine dining, so uh, he can <laughs> cool. cook anything and, er- anything and everything. Um, so, yeah, it's, uh, we're on a dirt road, but we're about five miles from Blowing Rock, and we're about eight miles from Boone, uh, where Appalachian State University is, and that's where we go when we need to do track sessions. Right on. Very cool. Now, you, you mentioned having, you know, kind of everyday runners like the Atlanta Track Club group coming up to the camp. Yeah. How often do you guys have groups like that come up? About 20 groups a year. Um, so, like this year, we did seven high school teams seven college teams, six or seven college teams, um, and then a handful of just, uh, again, uh, sort of a random assortment of people who will just call and say, hi, we're the, you know, whatever, the greater Charlotte runners. There's 12 of us, and we want to come up and just sort of eat good food and train and soak in the creek and soak in your hot tub and uh, focus on training for four days, and we get a lot of that. Um, So get about 20 mixed groups a year. And that's in addition to our own adult running camps, which we put on, and those are those are full service camps. Those are ones where we do you know lectures all day, from nutrition to exercise science to strength training to yoga. Um, uh, but as far as outside groups that come, uh, usually a couple dozen a year. Was was that kind of part of Andy's vision as well? Um, that 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 was good, that ultimately the camps and and all that sort of thing was, and it was going to be like a hub for learning as well. Right. So he had put on running camps in Maine. Uh, at okay. uh, the main running camp in Bar Harbor, Maine, and he um, so he loved that aspect of education for runners of every age and ability. I mean, we get people who come to camp who can't complete two miles uh, and are frankly overweight. Uh, we get those people, and uh, we also uh, sorry, there's a dog barking. We've got a got some deer in our lower a deer in our lower field. Um, <laughs> you are in the country. It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, and then you know, the other end of the spectrum, which is you know we get people who come to camp every year who run Boston every year and are looking to shave off that precious one minute to you know be top ten in their age group at Boston or whatever it is. Um, but yes, to answer your question, Andy wanted the professional side for the post collegians who live here, as well as um, the business side of camps and groups uh, for running education. And and to be frank, our business model money wise is um, a third of our total income comes from the camps uh, and groups that uh, that we host. Uh, the, the other third comes from donations, and the last third comes from our corporate sponsor, Reebok. So it's kind of an interesting business model. It's a model of thirds. Right on. Very cool. That's pretty cool. Not often in it, most sports do kind of everyday participants get to learn from 
right on. professionals like that. Yeah. Now, how how do kind of the everyday runners like the campers? How do they interact with you know maybe your professional runners on side? And then maybe what are some some common lessons you think that they can learn at some of those camps? Yeah, I, the cool thing is that you know when we have camps, it's our athletes. If they're not traveling for races, our athletes are the ones who are, you know, they're in. They have duties here. They're in the kitchen. They might be on vegetable chopping duty for two hours. They're <laughs> mowing the grass. They're serving serving the meals. They're prepping the lodge and making the campers' beds. You know, if you have issues with a little manual labor, then you're, you definitely don't belong here as a zap athlete. But it's cool because our athletes are the ones who are eating meals with. The campers, and what I've noticed is you'll get some, you know, you'll get some uh, camper whose goal it is to finish their first half marathon, and who knows, they might run two and a half hours for a half marathon, having dinner with Tyler Pinnell on our team who ran 101.40 for a half marathon two years ago, and and who uh, and who and who made the race at the Olympic trials. It should be said in 2016. <laughs> right. Um, and and most campers then find out that there really isn't much difference between the two of them. I mean, there's Days you run hard, days you run easy. There's days you take off. There's uh, days you should go see a massage therapist for rehab. Um, it's just that one athlete's running a hell of a lot faster. Right on. Very good. Um, so let's, since you kind of touch on training here, let's talk a little bit about some training because you know we've watched your DVD, um, mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, uh, which, uh, which I appreciate. You're, and, you're and, the one. So yeah, um, I, yeah. I, I noticed that it's, uh, it's it's still for sale on your website. So you know, if if, if, you're, if, if folks are listening to what what Pete has to say, and you're like, oh yeah, Pete communicates in a much clearer way than Patrick and George do. I'm gonna look at his DVD. So, um, but uh, but so let's talk a little bit about training, and and I, I particularly like what you just said about how how you know the way that people train is still the same, um, because that's that's something that we always really hammer home with a lot of our adult athletes that we coach, um, because we coach a really wide range of people, as you can imagine, from oh, wow. yep. from Kona and Boston qualifiers to, to people who are not Kona and Boston qualifiers. Um, so one of the things that stood out, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit here, uh, one of the things you, you mentioned a second ago is you talked about yoga sessions and stuff. I remember going on a run with you about 20 years ago, and you weren't <laughs> stretching afterwards, and I had noticed on several occasions that you didn't stretch, and I said, do you ever stretch? And you said, no, I don't believe in it. And I was like, yeah. oh, um, have you changed <laughs> in that regard? Or, or so, so talk a little bit about stretching and, and weight training and mobility and all those sorts of things real quick. Sure. So I, you mentioned stretching, and then you just mentioned mobility, and there's a difference between the two. And right. I think that that's the area. I do think Arthur Lydiard had it right all along, that static stretching is not a good idea for most performance-based athletes. I mean, if you have any micro-tearing, especially after hard things, the last thing you want to do is exacerbate a micro-tear, which static stretching will do. Um, and I think I should at least put a little asterisk next to this, which is 56 athletes here in, this is now our 17th year starting, I've had four athletes who were never hurt. That's a rare thing as much as the athletes here run. Those four athletes were the four who never once stretched. Um, um, their, their stretching was they would start their runs, their first mile would be a 10-minute mile on, on any run. Um, and we're, we're big fans of walking, like Pablo Nermi. We do a lot of afternoon walks where the athletes will go for a two-hour walk, even as, as much as they're running, um, to work on, on circulation. But we stretch more now, but more from the mobility standpoint, East African style. So what does that mean? Hey, go jog. 20 minutes very, very gently. We call it slush jog. You all know what I mean. Just kind of really just kind of moving the legs. You know, you could walk just as fast. Um, and then uh, A skips, B skips, lateral hops, arm swings. So to open up the tissue in a non-static fashion. 
Um, and, uh, you know, look, if you, if you look back as, as recently as Robert Vaughn, University of North Texas researcher, showed definitively that tighter muscles are more explosive than looser muscles. It's just like a slinky. If it's tighter, they will explode better. You don't want to be too flexible. And I think that that's one of those areas in sport, particularly endurance sport, that seems so counterintuitive to people. They think, oh, well, the more flexible I am, the more explosive I'll be. Well, it's just, just the opposite. So you want to be warm. You want to be um, uh, pliable, but not necessarily overtly flexible. Right. So we stretch a little bit. It's more from a dynamic mobility from the standpoint of things like hops, lateral hops, skipping, um, and general movement before we do anything hard. Right on. And then, and then Patrick and I also have talked on this podcast before about how as, as runners who grew up in the 80s and 90s, uh, we are not super comfortable in the weight room. <laughs> and I, and I, I know that you're from the same era as well, and, and you yeah. know, judging by the physique that you used to have back when you and I used to run together a great deal, you didn't spend a whole lot of time in the weight room either. <laughs> uh, yeah, but, fair. Fair but, uh, action. Criticism. Yeah. But, but, but now yeah. I imagine you're athletes do, right? Right. So if there's an area, while I probably haven't changed my tune greatly in terms of the stretching, I have considerably in terms of um, strength yeah. and explosivity in terms of the ability to uh, uh, the ability to maintain form and posture and be more powerful without without necessarily having more bulk and if you're running particularly as much as the athletes here are running uh, it's a rare body type that's going to get much bigger in terms of lifting so we have um, we have a, a, a sequence one and a sequence two that we do it's generally four to five days a week in the weight room but far more so than I ever would have thought when you and I were training together, George. We, um, we're lifting a couple times a week where we're lifting heavy, and it's squats and it's step-ups, um, and uh, it's overload for all the prime movers in the back, for calves, for hamstrings, for quads, and particularly for glutes where so many of the injuries come from. Right on. Yeah, no, I, I, uh, I've said before on this podcast, and I've read this in several places as well, I mean, the same thing you just said. I think that's probably the single biggest change in running yeah. over the course of the past 10 years or so, is that suddenly sure. now everybody has, has seen the importance of strength training. Yeah. Yep. And what did you uh, uh, Go ahead. I was just going to say, even as, even as it relates to injury prevention, because um, the injuries we've had here, and believe me, almost every athlete we've had here has had something that they've dealt with. Um, I, I can't emphasize enough, particularly with the, the glutes, primarily the gluteus medius, is so weak with so many people because they spend so much time sitting down that, uh, that make, allowing those hips to be stronger creates strength. It radiates from that, both down and up. Hey, podcast listeners, this is George. I apologize for interrupting the interview, but we actually had some technical difficulties right here at the interview during the interview. Uh, and so I had to restart some software and all that sort of thing. Happily, we did not lose any of our interview with Pete uh, during the technical difficulties that we had, so no worries. Uh, you will hear me mention later on in the interview that I was worried that we had lost something, uh, but in fact we hadn't. So I apologize for that, and I apologize for this interruption. But let's continue on. Tell, we uh, speaking of workouts and, and and all that sort of thing. Uh, a couple of weeks yep. ago, we had a uh, we had a, a podcast on what what our favorite workouts were. Um, yeah. And so we want to hear yours. Um, what what are, what are some of the, the the workouts that are kind of your go to workouts that 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 Zap Fitness is kind of known for the Zap Fitness workout. <laughs> well, one, I, I, if I remember correctly, George, you may have done with me back in the day, but I'm not positive. But it's actually a workout um, which which 
uh, I think every coach steals all their favorite workouts at some point, but uh, was an old Bill Rogers workout from the 70s and 80s. And it, it's a descending tempo fartlek where we call it the seven to one. But So what we do is we'll do, uh, after we warm up, of course, we'll do um, fartlek pieces of seven minutes, and then a six-minute piece, and then a five, and then a four, and then a three, and then a two, and then a one. Oh, yeah. And the recovery recovery is half the time of the piece you just ran. So you do the seven, three-and-a-half minutes float recovery, and then you run the six, and then it's three minutes float recovery, five, two-and-a-half recovery, et cetera, et cetera. And the way it's designed is that you're supposed to start at, ru- at roughly uh, five to ten seconds per mile slower than your current half-marathon fitness. So, um, you know, if you're ready to run, you know, an hour and 30 minutes for a half marathon, which is just a hair faster than seven-minute pace, you might run the seven-minute interval at maybe 7.05 to 7.10 pace. So, essentially, you begin at roughly what your anaerobic threshold is in, in, in real terms. Um, and the recovery jog is not slow. The recovery jog is designed to be um, 55 to 65 seconds per mile slower than the on piece. So, you know, for that athlete I just mentioned, your recovery jog might just be eight-minute pace, which for that athlete is not ter- terribly easy. Um, and then the goal is to run four to six seconds per mile faster on every successive pickup. So, you know, that same athlete might run, um, you know, might run 6.55 to seven-minute pace on the six and then 6.50 pace on the five. And then um, the 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 goal is to get down toward roughly 5K effort by the time you get down to the two, two, and the one. So that's 41 minutes and 30 seconds total with recovery. That's seven, six, five, four, three, two, one with halftime rest. Um, and it's somewhat surprising that even with the float, people who are who can check their fitness often will run fairly close to half marathon rhythm for that whole workout from front to back. Um, and then the other one that we use a lot, uh, which you you both may know. Uh, our uh, Canova case, uh, named after Renato yeah. Canova, the, the the great Italian coach, where you run kilometer repeats that alternate between your anaerobic threshold and one half of one percent faster than anaerobic threshold. So it might be for for athletes of the caliber I coach, it'll be roughly seven to eight seconds faster for the quicker ones, and then you're just going slower, faster, slower, faster, teaching the body to recover. Um, at a pace that's still relatively fast for the threshold-based ones, and then the quicker ones, you're looking at uh, almost almost 10k race pace, um, back and forth, back and forth. And usually, we'll begin the season by doing seven. Middle of the season, we'll do nine to eleven, and by the end of the year, we'll do thirteen or fourteen by a thousand uh, in that fashion. Wow, yeah, that's that's a lot by the end of the season. But I, but I like what you said of how you 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 move to it. You know, you don't you don't you don't jump in at 13 at the very beginning of the season or anything like that. Um, and I have done that seven six five four three two one workout with you before. Um, I uh, I I often will give my athletes what I call just five four three two one. Um, yeah. And right. then yeah. yeah. And then my more advanced athletes, um, I or after we build up to, I might do seven seven six five four three two one. I actually call that workout. I call it a Landreth um, after Travis oh, yeah. after Travis Landreth, who both you and I know back in the day, and who who Andy Palmer I think coached. Um, Yes, and and he did. He liked that workout in the yeah, summers. Right, uh, that, which that's, is pretty that's, interesting. Yeah, and that's the reason why. That's the reason why I call it that because because I remember you were saying at one point that was one of his favorite workouts. So, um, for those of you who are listening, I'm sure you don't know this. Travis Landreth was a runner at UConn, like Pete was a runner at UConn, um, and on a run out in California, um, as he was sort of in that, 
I guess what you call that the Zap Fitness tier. And I, I agree with you that Pete, I don't like that tier idea either. Um, but he was in that that really good, but not quite the upper echelon level. Um, yep, and he was out on a run, sure. and he dropped dead on a run at age 24. Um, yeah, I remember that well. Um, and then that was only about two weeks before Andy died, as a matter of fact. Um, it, it was actually a year before Andy died. Oh, okay, he, he, he died in January of 01. Um, uh, uh, it was just about, uh, I think it was 55 weeks between uh, between the two. And, you know, we see we see Travis's memorial out at Stanford each year when we uh, when we uh, when we go out there. So. Right on, right on. Yeah, very good. Um, go ahead. Uh, so you th- we talked about some of your favorite workouts, but we can kind of take a step back and, and tell us a little bit about some of your, your, your basic training principles. What are some of your top training principles that maybe you bring to your athletes and maybe to, to campers that visit visit your camp? I know you mentioned the, the name Lydiard, who's kind of the yep. father of distance running in, in many ways. Yep. Um, I, I guess just to give a few is um, this, this seems somewhat old school, but it Across the board, you know, I coach a handful of individuals outside the ZEP athletes, people who have come to camp, and one is that mileage matters. Uh, it does. Uh, in terms of your body's ability to transport oxygen efficiently, efficiently, in terms of, you know, maximizing capillary beds and getting uh, oxygen to working muscles, how much you exercise matters. Um, now, if someone's been running for 45 years and they're 70, would I say, oh, now's the time to really boost your volume? Well, the, the answer is no. Um, but whether an athlete that, is... George, now's not the time to boost your volume. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, so with athletes I coach, you know, one of the first orders of business I look at is, hey, how can we develop your volume intelligently? Uh, for example, when I say intelligently, I always do two weeks up, one week down. So I'll say, okay, this week is 30 miles for the week target, the next week is 35, and then the third week will be 23 to 25 for your pullback week. And then the next three-week cycle will start a little higher. We'll start at 33 to 35, and we'll go 38 to 40 for week two, and then we'll be down to 28 for the third week of the cycle. So it's not just build, 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 and pray to God that we don't get hurt. Um, so one is in increasing volume, um, and then and then the other is for those who – because every athlete has their um, – standard of volume, like you've known the athletes who can just run, hey, every time I get to 45 miles a week, I get hurt. And that's a real thing. Some athletes can just run more than others and have no problems. For the athletes who are perhaps a little bit more fragile, we've got an athlete on our team right now, Andrew Colley from NC State. You know, he made the world cross-country team here, but he's had a hard time staying healthy. We do non-running exercise not just in rehab for for injury, but as part of their regular training sequence so it might be hey this athlete runs a couple less fewer days a week but they're going to go pool run or they're going to get on the alter g or we have a couple of elliptigo machines here which you can take out on the road uh i'd rather have an athlete doing three to four hours a week of non-running exercise and having their heart rate elevated um for that period because it still will improve your body's ability to transport oxygen efficiently even though it's not the same as running. The other training principle I would just throw out is that rest is not the absence of training, but part of it. Um, right and that's an area that American athletes, multi-sport athletes, runners, swimmers, cyclists, just really struggle with the notion that, geez, if I'm not training, then I'm not improving. When, um, I mean, the best athletes in the world take a few periods a year where they really, really pull back and take some rest and allow their body to recover so that they can be more effective and efficient the next 
training cycle. Um, so here at Zap, when we have athletes who have a targeted goal, you know, I've got an athlete here at Zap who just ran Houston Half Marathon. It was his primary goal all fall was to run the Houston Half, and the next 10 days was 30 minutes of jogging every other day. For him, that's a rest cycle. Um, and I'm not sure if he's really enjoying it, but I really try to emphasize that, hey, this is part of training, not the absence of it. Right on. I, I like I like the way you say that that it's it's part of training, not the absence of training. Um, because yeah, we certainly find that a lot um, with some of the people that, um, particularly if they come and we found that, or I found at least, I don't want to speak for Patrick, that if somebody comes in, um, particularly into like multi-sport, um, into triathlon after they have after they've grown up just going to the gym. Um, oh, right. They, they, right. they, they, they kind of think, okay, well, you know, you go to the gym year-round, you always lift, you're always getting stronger, and so that's the way you approach endurance sports as well. And um, the idea of, like, taking a strategic break um, and, and actually losing a little bit of fitness is really, really, really hard for them to swallow. Um, and we have some pretty advanced athletes who still can't really swallow it. <laughs> yeah, that, that's well, a I, constant I just... struggle. I had a I had a great talk this past year at the Mount Sac uh, Relays uh, with Ed Eystone, who's the coach at Brigham Young. Yeah. And, you know, Ed made the Olympic team in, in 1988 and 1992. Um, he also won the Peace Road Race. Yeah. He also won the Peace Road Race, that's right. <laughs> and, you know, Ed was a very simple guy in terms of his training. His, he ran 10 miles in the morning, 10 miles at night, and on Saturdays he ran 20. So he ran 120 miles a week on six days. But, you know, Ed's a devout Mormon doesn't run on Sundays. And I asked him about that. I, I said, you know, it was, a, you know, for him, it was for different reasons. It was for religious reasons. But he said, look, from a training perspective, I think it served him really well to have a really long career because he always had that day of nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was somewhat unique to hear as a student of the sport to hear that for him, um, he had that day off where he wasn't training. Uh, and it, it probably lengthened his career. Right on. Right on. We uh, we've taken a lot of your time, Peter. We're gonna we're gonna ask you a couple more quick things, and then I'm gonna go back and ask you to repeat something, just in case I did actually delete the first part of our conversation here by accident. But um, um okay. I I did. You talked about injury, um, and and we've talked about you know the full time chef and the amenities and all that sort of thing that you have for your athletes. Um, do your athletes get get health insurance as well? Yeah, so they get. Uh, you know, if you're a, if you're a Zap resident athlete, they get uh, room and board. Uh, you know, they have no they. The rent's free. The utilities are free. Uh, all their meals are covered. They have full full health insurance um, and uh, and dental. Um, and then they get a stipend. It's a it's a, it's a salary as well. Uh, winter training, massage therapy that's included. All those things. It's a it's a full package of uh, uh, support that our foundation gives them. Yeah. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, and I think that's. Because I remember when 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 y'all were first when Zap was first beginning established, I remember being struck by the fact that wow they get health insurance because that was yeah. that's such a killer yes. in 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 that in that level of athlete that, that we're describing that that yep. they're right there on the edge and then they're trying to run more and they're really pushing the envelope trying to make that that higher level and they get injured and it all falls apart because they don't or have- the other the unfortunate part is even beyond that that the idea that's happened to a couple athletes namely an american olympian by the name of doug padilla you know if you ever got hit by a car or something something tragic were to happen and you didn't have health insurance and now you're on the hook for hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of medical bills um just that safety net of knowing that that you never want that to happen but if some unfortunate like that did happen that you wouldn't go bankrupt right right super important very good 
Um, all right, so so you have 20 different weeks throughout the course of the year, and, or 20 different camps throughout the course of the year, that sort of thing. Um, your your actual Zap Fitness camps, yep. the the yep. and the, those I imagine are probably they're this summer and they're probably full already, right? Um, let's see, I, six camps, I think three are full, uh, three still have spaces. It's interesting. A lot of the returning campers, uh, we get lots of returnees. About half half of our campers return. And a lot of them become really good friends, and they meet at races around the country. So what happens is uh, the same three camps tend to fill up pretty pretty quickly because the returning campers all want to come together, almost like reunion every year for camp. Right, right. But no, they're not they're not all full right now. I'd say we're at 65% capacity here in January. So um, usually they're all full by the time we get to May. And we're trying something new. We've never done it before. We always like to try a slightly new angle this year we're doing a a camp in july we're calling adventure camp and really all that means is we're going to do the same things we do for normal camp but we're also going to raft and zip line and do some more challenge hikes and uh uh for we're just getting a lot of people who are interested in being a little bit more kind of edgy outdoorsy right on take advantage of some of the stuff that western north carolina has to offer yeah, put that health insurance right. to good use. <laughs> <laughs> right. right on. Right on. And so, so uh, point. Point. Uh, zapfitness.com, right? Zapfitness.com, yep. All right, very good. And then finally, uh, you're going to a meet this weekend. I know. What, tell us about this weekend and tell us about the, the next couple of weekends, like the big things on the horizon as far as races go for Zap. Sure. Uh, like, well, the Houston Half Marathon was this past weekend, which was a big push for a couple of our athletes. We had a guy run his first his debut half marathon. Matt McClintock ran 102.30 this past weekend, uh, and his teammate Joe Stillen ran 103.30. That was their debut for both. Um, but uh, let's see. So this weekend is a New Balance Games at the uh, New York City Armory. Uh, Brandon Dowdy, one of our athletes, University of Oklahoma grad, is going to run the, the 3,000 there. Uh, and then the following weekend is the U.S. Cross Country Championships. Um, it's the Pan Am Games qualifier, and that is actually in Tallahassee where our team is training right now. So uh, Aaron Nelson, one of our guys, is going to run. And then the greater goal is uh, uh, Tyler Pinnell, Joanna Thompson, and Nicole DiMercurio. Uh, three of our athletes are targeting uh, uh, targeting Boston, so they're they're going to run. The Boston Marathon, which is probably a race some of your folks have heard of. Yeah, Patrick's <laughs> running Boston. Yeah. Yeah, we'll have a oh, big group out there. Yeah. 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 Very good. Oh, don't, great. Don't you have an event or something when you're when you're up in Boston? Yeah. So the, the, Patrick, the Patrick and, crash and all your your folks who are running uh, the day before the marathon every year now. I think this will be our eighth year. We do a social at the Washington Square Tavern on Washington Street in Brookline. It's right at the 20, 23 mile mark of the marathon. Uh, we do a uh appetizers and all drinks uh on zap so um love to have all your clients there it's a lot of fun they close the place for us for three hours uh, the day before boston although i hope your clients don't partake too much in the open bar <laughs> the day before boston but <laughs> yeah. since, since i'm not able to run boston this year maybe i'll make the trip and and go partake on everybody else's behalf yeah, uh, someone's got to take part in the open bar, George. So that's right. Come on that's up. right. I mean, uh, I, I'd be willing to take one for the team. Yeah, it's a tough job, but somebody's got to do it. That's right. That's right. <laughs> well, Pete, thanks again. We really appreciate it, man. Now, yeah, thanks you, for bo- both of you for having me. Yeah. yeah. But before you take off, I do actually have one yeah. final question. So I know sure. you uh, trained with George. You both were coaches in the Atlanta area. Do you have any good stories on George <laughs> from the nineties or so? 
You said good stories? Yeah. Yeah, keep in yeah. mind here, I've, I've become a respectable person over the course of the past 10 years, so, like, like the yeah. certain, certain Christmas parties at your house probably don't need to be recounted. Yeah. No, you know, my, 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 my fondest memories, though, of training in Atlanta really are that uh, Atlanta has, you know, what is it, the second largest running club in America behind the New York Roadrunners is the Atlanta Trek Club. Mm-hmm. Um, the running community there is is phenomenal, and it's growing even now. Uh, but my, my fondest memories are, are things like, sun, you know, George and I would do Sunday runs up at Kennesaw Mountain, uh, and there'd be, you know, hundreds of runners of all ages and abilities and, uh, you know, uh, uh, George's dad was a was a congressman, and I've always been passionate about politics. So my memories are of running with George, and the pace would just keep getting faster and faster as we talked about <laughs> certain po- certain politics. And by the end, we'd nearly be yelling at each other. So uh, even, even though we agreed on most political issues, and still do. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But uh, lo- lots of fun training on Kennesaw Mountain, which I still believe is uh, one of the best running venues. Um, uh, east of the Mississippi is, is Kennesaw Mountain. So for your clients who live in Atlanta, I know everybody likes the Chattahoochee River. It's safe and, and wide, and it's right in town, but it's worth the extra 15 minutes north to go run and see the Confederate uh, mounds that they hid behind during the, the battle, and it's pretty fascinating. Absolutely. Agreed. Yeah, well, very good. I'll just let you know, we still have those Sunday morning uh, runs, and I, I call them story time with George. Because <laughs> <laughs> usually he's just going about some latest study. The rest of us are gasping for air, and he's just going on. No, I, I, I'm telling stories about the glory days with Pete Ray. Back in the day, Pete and I ran over this loop, and we ran, and, uh, you know, so, so talking about... Although I will tell you something funny is the loop that we used to run was a 10-mile loop, which started at Burnt Hickory Road and did the upper loop, the Illinois Monument, and back around, which for years I always assumed I would write in my journal 10 miles, 10 miles, 10 miles. And then uh, I, I, uh, I don't remember who it was. Someone from the ATC said that they had actually gone out and wheeled it or GPSed in there. And they said, "Oh, no, no, no! You, you know that's, you know that's 9.4." And it, right. like I just, my heart sank because now I realize I wasn't nearly as fast as I thought I was. Right. Yeah. Actually, I, I want to say, didn't you write about in Running Times or Runner's World? There was a, there was a, like a little small piece where they said, "Pete Ray, tell us about your favorite place to run," and you said. You mentioned that loop and said, I think it's 11 miles, and it's 9.4. Yeah, I did. They asked me to write a piece in Running Times back when that magazine existed about a favorite run of mine, and I wrote it about the Kennesaw Loop. you got a, you got a good memory, George. Yeah, the, the Kennesaw Loop that, that to you was 11 miles and was, in fact, 9.4. Oops. <laughs> yeah. Right on, right on. Thanks again, Pete. We really appreciate it, man. All right. You guys have a great spring. Yeah, you too. Good luck with everything. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And there you have the interview that Patrick and I did with Peter Ray of Zap Fitness. Um, I hope that you found it was interesting, all the various things he talked about. Um, I liked what he said about recovery, obviously. I liked what he talked about with the mission of Zap, uh, the role and the changing role of weight training uh, for athletes. Um, and most importantly, and the reason why I chose the soundbite that I did for the intro, the way that the principles that apply to his runners apply to everyone. Um, he Uh, approaches campers the same way that he approaches elite athletes. Um, If you want to look into their camps um, or if you want to donate to their foundation, you can go to zapfitness.com and check them out. I did want to share a couple of quick results with you. Uh, He mentioned Matt McClintock, who who ran 102.34 in the Houston Half Marathon last weekend. Uh, Matt was there unloading boxes with him of Reebok, their sponsored shoes, uh, while, uh, while... 
Pete was talking to us about training principles and that sort of thing. Uh, same guy, Matt McClintock, along with Joe Stillen and Aaron Nelson, uh, ran the VCU Health 8K on November 11th, a very competitive race where they finished third, fourth, and sixth. Um, to give you an example of how competitive it was, Matt McClintock ran 2254 uh, for third. That's a five-mile race. Um, Johnny Crane and Nicole DiMercurio both qualified for the Olympic trials at the California International Marathon on December 3rd. And Tyler Pinnell, who you heard us talking about uh, earlier on in the podcast, who finished fifth in the Olympic marathon trials in 2016 after making a really bold move around the 16-mile mark of that race, um, he finished 20th at the Fukuoka Marathon uh, running 215. Uh, the Fukuoka Marathon, if you don't know, is kind of like a de facto world championship. It's an extremely, extremely competitive, albeit very small marathon in Fukuoka, Japan. So a 20th place finish at that marathon is, is a very impressive result. Uh, thanks again to to Pete for joining us, and thanks again to all of you for listening. And that brings us to the end of another installment of the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance. Thanks again for joining us. Please go on to iTunes and give us a rating or give us a review. That helps us get our podcast out to more people. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, at Pleasant Podcast. Uh, go to our blog at mostpleasantexhaustion.blogspot.com or connect with us on Facebook, facebook.com slash pleasantpodcast. Don't forget to check out our sponsor, ITL Coaching and Performance at itlcoaching.com, at itlcoaching on Twitter, or at facebook.com slash itlcoachingandperformance. Uh, finally, don't forget about my wife, the travel agent, who also sponsors our podcast here, facebook.com slash MEV. Or you can drop our line at caseytravelplanner at gmail.com. That's K-A-C-I-E, travelplanner at gmail.com. On behalf of Patrick Ollander, I'm George Darden. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time on the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast.